Today's podcast came about because I am on this this network to connect podcasters to guests. And Dr. Mark Vordebergen reached out to me and told me he has a PhD in chemistry, but he's really interested in foraging. And he spends a lot of time talking about foraging. And he wanted to be on my podcast. And at first I was like, hmm, foraging? Like, I don't know if this fits into what I talk about. I've heard of urban foraging, and and this is the practice where people go outside and look for edible foods and and eat them. But then I thought, my podcast is about sustainability. I know I've been talking about careers a lot, but I care deeply about sustainability as a conservationist, as a wildlife biologist. And I was like, oh, this could be a really cool thing to talk about and something that I really don't know anything about. In fact, you're probably going to laugh at me during times in this podcast because my plant knowledge or my plant ID skills are so bad it'll come across. But anyway, so I interviewed Mark and oh my God, it was so much fun. It was just such a joy to talk to him about how to get started foraging, about how abundant different plants are, how you don't really have to go that far. You can just get started in your own backyard. We talk about the nutritional benefits of foraging and the medicinal benefits. It's just a really fun conversation. And of course, how foraging helps out sustainability and eases some of the pressures that we humans cause on the planet. So strap in and get ready to hear this really great interview. I do want to say that we talk about medicinal benefits. Neither one of us are doctors, so don't explicitly take our advice. I don't offer any advice though, (laughs) but make sure you always consult a professional and whatever we say here is for informational and entertainment value. You, You definitely need to talk to a professional if you want to seek out medical advice. So with that, let's get ready to just jump right into the interview. This is such a fun conversation. One more final, final thing. I released my Confusion to Clarity course this past December, and I got some feedback from you guys that it just wasn't a good time, and for some of you, it was out of your budget range. So I wanted to make this course accessible to more people. I also did a gigantic oopsies with my email list, and long story short, there was a conflict in between emails and subscriber confirmation. So people weren't getting the emails about this course, even though they signed up for the video series. So what I'm doing for the rest of January is I am making the recordings of this course available for purchase, and it's going to be for $127. So in December, it did have group coaching and stuff, but it was $4.95. So this is a really big, deep discount. And I'm doing this because this is really all of the, 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 meat and potatoes that I want to give you that you guys need to know before you start this career. So this is for January only. So I hope you sign up today to get the help you need. Hi, Mark. Welcome Hi. to the podcast. I'm Dr. How Shuttler, are you today? A wildlife biologist who's a learned throughout her career Texas. studying animals. Is it, is it really? Or are you being it is, No, it, it is okay. 70 <laughs> degrees <laughs> and sunny. It, the uh, temperature okay. has in increased. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, degrees, conservation tips, and science days, advice. So. All while breaking yeah, so if you're listening to this later, this is right, right like. after Texas had these major storms and we saw all these photos on the internet of ceiling fans that had like t- like gigantic mm. icicles hanging from them. For the first time since the Ice Age, people actually did ice fishing here. They actually walked out on a frozen oh, wow. pond, cut a hole. I grew up in Minnesota. I, I left because of the cold weather. It tracked me down. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm from Buffalo, so I hate oh. cold weather too. So you have a very interesting path, I imagine, because you you have your PhD and it's in chemistry. Correct, yes. But now your your main objective, or the, I, I would say the thing you get most excited about is foraging, correct? Correct. Can yeah. you, well, first of all, can you explain what foraging is. So I'm a wildlife biologist. We talk about animals foraging. We don't really think of humans foraging. So what is what is meant by that word foraging? 
it's sad that people don't think about humans foraging anymore because for <laughs> as long as we are around, you know, the, the concept of a grocery store is only slightly more than 100 years old. Mm -hmm. Of course, there is agriculture goes back, you know, about four to 6,000 years, you know, growing wheat and so forth. But before that, everything we get, you know, you hear the hunter gatherer, you're either hunting animals or you are gathering the, the plants around you. So foraging basically is still using that gathering skill, gathering the edible and medicinal plants that are all around us. And there are a lot, hundreds and hundreds. So this is completely new to me in terms of like, I know the concept of it, but I just have no idea like how to do it. I'm guilty of being disconnected from plants. Like I know, I know my mammals, but I'm really bad at plants. So, so I guess maybe you can talk about what are, what are the benefits of foraging? Like why would somebody want to start foraging? And I can think of some, but I'll, I'll let you get started. Sure. Okay. First off nutrition. A lot of domesticated plants, part of domesticating, domesticating them meant we traded off some of their nutritional value to make them have a longer period in their life when they were considered edible or improving the flavor or just making harvesting easier. Whereas a lot of wild plants, if you think about it, they're constantly in a war over resources, constantly evolution, you know, battles going on, survival of the fittest. And so the, the wild plants have a natural vigor to them just through evolution. And part of that vigor is through producing a whole bunch of molecular, you know, molecules in them, compounds that serve the purpose in the plants, like vitamin C. You know, humans cannot make vitamin C. We cannot store vitamin C, but we need it every day. It's something that's critical for a whole bunch of systems. Plants develop vitamin C to protect them basically from sunburn. If you look into the chemistry of plants, the, the, the vitamin C, it basically works, you know, plants want sunlight, but plants can get too much sunlight and they use vitamin C to protect themselves from the, the burning that occurs. We figured out, or somewhere in the primate evolutionary case, and if you're looking at animals, the primates lost the ability to make vitamin C, maybe because it was so easy to get from plants. And again, going back to evolution, if a, feature isn't necessarily needed if it doesn't assist the body but the body is still doing it it takes energy that the body could use somewhere else mm -hmm. and so if you stop doing that thing that takes energy that you no longer need to spend you have energy to spend elsewhere you're more vigorous you're more likely to reproduce produce offspring that have that same you know mutation so in the case of the vitamin c it was so abundant from the plants that the fact that you didn't have to make it freed up the, the machinery that would make it for other things because it was so easy to get. So there's all sorts of nutritional, there's all sorts of other molecules like that. But something that people have also forgotten going back again to the whole evolution of the caveman is the world that we evolved in is much different than the world now. I like to tell people right now, the world is too flat. If you look at how we evolved, we were walking on uneven, slippery ground, you know, constantly watching our feet, using our muscles to stay balanced as we clamber over rocks and through mud and over roots and things like that. Nowadays, we're walking on flat tile. The Japanese demographics, the country, it's getting very old. So they've put a lot of scientific studies on how can they maintain the health of the elderly people. One of the really interesting things they found was by having them walk on uneven ground. What this does just, is it, just uneven ground, just it uneven outside. It helps if it's outside. There's a whole yeah. other mental benefit, but by yeah. walking on things, your, your brain is more active because it's, you know, adjusting to things. So it's like exercise for your brain, your sense of balance improves. So you're less likely in a case where you might slip and break a hip, which is almost a death sentence for the elderly they're less likely to slip and break a hip. Mm -hmm. Awesome. They have improved core muscle strength because as you are walking on that uneven ground, you're constantly adjusting your body. So that sort of thing. Going to the brain, again, when we're outside, all our senses are being stimulated. Our sense of touch, you know, our feet on the ground, the wind across our skin, mm -hmm. the sense we smell, we're constantly analyzing, you know, the caveman part of our brain is constantly analyzing the environment for threats. If you're sitting on a couch, 
the brain is still doing this. It's still looking. There's, you know, there's a threat somewhere. But uh, that's why we worry so much. We're trying to find the threats. And exactly. <laughs> you know, there aren't threats in our lives anymore. And even outside, there isn't. But at least we're giving the brain that sort of constant stimulation it evolved, you know, to to interact with. So not I won't say need, but definitely interact with. So the sights, the sounds, the hearing, all that is is being triggered. And so again, it's like a workout for your brain. The effects on children with attention deficit disorders have been amazing. You might have seen some of those studies where just 30 minutes off the trail in the woods three times a week has like a 90% reduction in the symptoms of attention deficit disorders. Because again, their brain is getting that stimulus. You know, a video game, you're simulating the eyes, I guess the ears, you know, little pads on your thumbs, that's it. You know, but you're out walking and as soon as you're walking, you're probably picking up a stick. So you're feeling the stick, you're twirling the stick, you're poking at things, you're doing all this stuff. You're doing what we evolved to do. That's what it boils down to. Yeah, the 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 or I think a lot of people when they think of going outside, they think of physical benefits like hiking and I don't know, trail running, which of course is is obviously helpful to us, but there are all these psychological and mental health benefits. And I'm reading Last Child in the Woods right now. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've never read it, but I know a lot about Richard Louvre. And I went to the Children and Nature Network uh, conference a couple of years ago. And it just totally opened my eye to just all these amazing studies about how children especially, but adults too, just benefit from just being outside nature. And, some, and yeah. sometimes it's not even that. It's just looking out windows or having like screensavers that are nature or desktop that are, that's nature. So yeah, it all has to do with the way that we evolved. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that I was thinking would be a benefit, and I love all the health benefits. That's something, I don't know if you know that much about me, but I'm totally in, into like all like I read a lot about health you. and yeah. stuff. <laughs> So, I, and I think it's all tied together too. Like the better that we eat, the better it is for the planet because those practices are more sustainable. And even if you don't care about like animal rights or animal welfare, again, it, it boils down to us and how it impacts the environment and, and our bodies as well. So, so can we talk about sustainability? So yes. how how does foraging play an impact in more sustainable living? Okay. So like this, this is my backyard. Well, two weeks ago, (laughs) but it's a basic suburban lot. It's 30 feet deep by 70 feet wide. I've created in it what's called a permaculture food forest, mostly by just digging up the grass, putting some sticks for birds to land on the birds land on it. The birds poop in the bird poop. There are seeds and then different things grow. And after doing that for about five years, you know, the results are pretty amazing. Then you go through and identify the edible plants that have showed up just naturally and start oh, eating. Oh, wow, them. that's so cool. So, yeah, you know, I can get about 10% of the family's food, family of four, from the backyard. And essentially 10%. anyone can do this no matter where they live. Yep. Wow. That imagine is so imagine cool. if everyone produced 10% of their food in their backyard. Now you say, okay, what about people living in apartments and city dwellers and so forth? It becomes a little more complicated mm-hmm. uh, because. Well, for one thing, there's two sides to that. The first being, are you allowed to harvest plants in parks and so forth? And that is a state by state and even city by city sort of rule. Like here in in the, the state of Texas, it is illegal to harvest plant material from a piece of property without the property owner's permission. These laws go back to the sheep and cattle wars of the 1800s. But I'll tell you right now, no city park is going to give you permission to harvest because A, they don't want people tearing up the park. And B, they put it down or put down so much fire ant killer down here that you really mm, don't want to yeah. eat anything from the park. But some of the states with uh, more foraging friendly laws, California, Minnesota, Wisconsin, New York, have run into problems exactly because foraging has become really popular lately and parks are suffering from it. So, you know, there, there has to be kind of a happy medium between you know, foraging on public land and not stripping it bare like hungry locusts. The other (laughs) side, I mentioned the fire ant poisons. You know, you want to make sure if you're harvesting edible plants, you're harvesting them from a safe ecosystem. There aren't, you know, chemicals in the soil. There's a lot of wild plants 
something that makes them so nutritious is they really are good at sucking things out of the soil, which is great if it's things you need, like manganese or calcium, things like that. But if it's arsenic or mercury, not so good. Yeah. Luckily, there's been some really interesting studies based in Boston and the Twin Cities in Minnesota, looking at the soil and looking at the plants, the wild plants there, and finding, you know, how contaminated are they? The result is not at all. So in cities that don't have super high industrial complexes where they have, you know, factories belching mercury into the sky, the plants, the wild plants coming up from the, the city sidewalk are safe to eat. Now, keep in mind dog pee and things like that. <laughs> you just wash it off. Either. Exactly. You rinse it in a little vinegar and away you go. And stuff but, coming from farms too is going to have animal uh -huh. in fact, on yeah, it. and side-by-side -side comparisons found higher risks in the farm because they are bringing in the fertilizer and everything else yeah. and there's you know so i spent some time over in china and there there is no just landscaping for the sake of looking pretty it's all food so hmm. you know, every little you know, any little section bigger than about two feet by two feet cabbages or cucumbers or radishes or you know something growing in there so along with the whole foraging i i try really hard to to push food security in general and you know growing it locally yeah. down here in texas it's all year round so i mean it's really easy you know anywhere really in the south or where you don't have hard winters until this year <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> you know you could supply a lot of food but even in Minnesota, where I grew up, that's you know where I learned foraging ori originally. We'd still get a lot of the food from the wild during the summers. So we there's probably know. so there's probably stuff in my backyard then because I I don't do anything with my backyard. It's kind of like the dogs own it. They just go <laughs> out there, <laughs> and I'm I'm obviously big into wildlife, and I read you know these articles about how obviously applying things like pesticides is terrible for your lawn. But we also, we actually didn't really have that much of a lawn in our backyard anyways, but we don't like rake leaves. We just, like I said, we Perfect. just let it go. So, so I should um, really take a look then. And, yeah. Do you and have any trees in have. your backyard? Yes. What do you have? I think some oak trees. Food, medicine. <laughs> okay. So what do, what do I do then? Okay. So. I eat an acorn. <laughs> Oh, okay. We're open. Oh, this is going to be fun. Okay. So <laughs> acorns. I'm really bad with plants. <laughs> okay. So acorns have been a staple food of humankind for before we were Homo sapiens. Keep in mind, even before we were Homo sapiens, there are our you know pre-Homo sapien ancestors were tool users. They were basketry makers. They were you know they had skills. They weren't just mindless brutes. And they figured out that. Well, have you ever tried an acorn? Because they're they're very bitter. No. So the acorn is loaded with a chemical called tannic acid. Mm -hmm. Tannic acid, if you think the word tanning leather, tannic acid is basically one of the compounds they use to tan leather. Doesn't taste very good, but if I, I saw you had some tea there. <laughs> so yes. if it has the sensinea, a regular tea in it, that bitterness is due to tannic acid. So small doses- Is that doses, what stains your teeth too? Yeah. At one point I was drinking, cause I used to drink coffee and I found out that that was actually making me really fatigued. Mm. So I switched to tea and my teeth started to get like, <laughs> like yellow and brown. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like <laughs> horrible. Yep. So I had to cut back on my tea a little. Uh, but yeah, but the tannic acid is very water soluble. So the early proto-humans and humans continue the tradition, soaking the crushed up acorns in running water. So think about it. the same way you make coffee, except they would put a bag of crushed up acorns in a stream with running water. You can't just boil them. You need the water to be flushing over them to take the tannic acid away. But then just after a day or two, what you're left with is a nugget that is loaded with some protein, fats, oils, and starch. The really interesting thing about acorns is they actually have pound for pound more starch content in them than grain. This is very unusual for no other nut has that much starch, but starch is calories, calories is life. So once you do that, once you get the tannic acid leached out, you can grind it up and make a flour out of it. 
Now it will be a gluten-free flour, so you can't make the raised beds breads, but it makes good gravy. Gluten-free, so that's good for me. There you go. Yeah, so you got <laughs> you know gluten-free in your backyard. But the other thing, if you have starch, and you have some sort of maltose enzyme, and you have wild yeast, you have the makings of alcohol. So acorn beer was a very common way of consuming the acorns. So. Oh, fun. My husband, <laughs> he used to, he, in Missouri, he brewed a lot of beer. He hasn't brewed any hmm. here, but I should encourage him to do, make some acorn beer. Is that, that, so that would be gluten-free. Still gluten-free. Yeah. Gluten-free oh, beer. Cool. And if you'd start digging into it, you will realize the, the acorn beer is what saved the pilgrims. From boredom? No, because, <laughs> no, <just> well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but, uh, you know, back then the water wasn't safe to drink, yeah. but beer was because it was, you know, processed and heated and so forth. The reason the pilgrims were dropped off at Plymouth Rock rather than farther south, like they were supposed to, is because the sailors were running out of the beer that they had stored to drink and said, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have enough beer, you're off here. So they dropped them off there. But back then the knowledge was still around of making beer out of acorns. So they were able to make beer out of the acorns there. And at least, you know, half of them survived the winter. <laughs> so, so if I wanted to get started in my backyard, what would be the best way to just start like identifying things with, do you, do you know about iNaturalist? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, you're right. Instead of grabbing a book, even one as good as, oh, say the idiot's guide <laughs> foraging, uh, <laughs> I was going to lead into that. You have, you have a okay. book about how to get yeah. started. Yeah, but uh, start by just identifying the plants in the yard. Start with the trees because the trees are you know, usually the biggest thing and the easiest to identify. Then figure out your landscaping bushes, even if it means just taking pictures of them and going to the local nursery and saying, hey, what is this? And then say, oh, it's an Eleagnus. Okay, great. Save the weeds for last until you've already learned the, you know, the, the, botanical nomenclature you need to properly search the plants you know the the type of so leaf, start the big start big small. and obvious and work your way down to the little stuff and yeah things like iNaturalist and there's some leaf snap and so forth are okay use them as suggestions not this is the answer so take the answer what about Sorry. What about if they have, what is it? Research grade? If they, what if they have research grade? Is, is that okay to trust? Cause I believe that's verified by experts. I have to be careful here. Yeah. <laughs> because there's always mistakes. Let's just say exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, go until you feel comfortable. Yes. This plant is it. Because in the end, it is your own personal choice and you are the one to blame. Something that is recommended is before you eat a plant for the first time, well, first have it, ideally you should be able to identify it just by seeing it. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, go ahead and identify it in your yard and you know, compare it to the iNaturalist and the different books and so forth. But generally you want to watch an entire life cycle to really see that it is the plant. At different seasons, you want to make sure it's still doing what the plant is doing. But then before you finally do eat it, take pictures of the specific plant you are about to eat. Keep a little bit of it, put it in a baggie with a note card with what you think it is and where you found it. And just keep that you know, there ready in your refrigerator. So if you have some sort of issue, either you still screwed up or just like any other foods, there is a possibility of allergic reaction. If you have to seek medical aid for some reason, you can say, this is the plant I ate. That's great. And it yeah, makes it a great, lot yeah. easier than saying, yeah, I ate this green thing in my yard. It had, you know, lobed leaves. Okay. Do you have more information for us? <laughs> nope. As opposed and to, people yes, are usually bad at, at describing things too, yeah. or they, they remember it differently. The, the, the hardest part about teaching people foraging is the overexcitement. They see a plant. I tell people, if you're matching a plant to some sort of guide, you want to match at least five structural features of the plant to whatever guide you're using. Do, 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 do. And, you know, make sure it's the plant. There's a plant called elderberry, which you might have heard of. It has a whole <laughs> bunch of really amazing health benefits. There's a plant called pokeweed, which 
at certain times and prepared in certain ways is very nutritious. The rest of the time, it basically causes your internal organs to rot and pour out of your body. So they both have- We don't want berries. that. We don't want that. <laughs> they both have purple berries. The time of year the berries show up is different. The arrangement of the berries on the plant is different. Every other aspect of the plant is different. The only thing they have in common is they both have purple berries. And so often people, because they want to find elderberry, they just say, aha, yeah. purple berries. This is elderberry. No, it's pokeweed. There was a case here in Texas a few years ago at a farmer's market, someone was selling elderberry jelly and it turned out to be pokeweed jelly. <sighs> Luckily, oh, if wow. you take the seeds out, you know, no one died, but it's not a good thing. It's like Black Panthers here. I have a video about what Black Panthers mm. really are and basically that there's no evidence that there's any in the United States. There's not even mountain lions in the Eastern United States and there, there's never been a documented case of a melanistic mountain lion. But I have so many comments about people seeing them and it's like, well, we have all these camera traps and there's all these people uploading photos to iNaturalist and, yep. and we get mountain lions where they are. So it's not like they're like elusive and avoiding the camera traps, but people, they just really want to see them. And mm -hmm. yeah, we do. I mean, I do get photos where it's not a mountain lion or it's not a black panther. And, you know, I tell them that and I even had it verified by other mammalogist and some people are just like nope that's it it's a black panther <laughs> they yeah. just want to believe it yep it's like it's a raccoon <laughs> the ring tail the mask it's no it's a black panther in this that's case it was a large yeah. yeah the case i was thinking it was a large house cat and it was a large house cat but even the person showed me like the paw prints and that like made me realize like okay it's definitely not a black panther because it because dogs and cats have different dogs have nails dogs yep. or cats retract them right but and it's and yeah there's so i don't so just to clarify i don't really think they're black panthers here but it is possible like people could see them if they're escaped not zoo animals but private zoo Perfect. animals yeah. um so it so people can see them but but anyways i digress so i'm thinking of the office do you watch the office I don't have time to watch much TV. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, there's occasionally little where... clips come across, but yeah. Well, this is like a pretty classic scenario, but there's okay. this scene where where Michael is like trying to make it in the woods to prove himself as being tough after his the rest of uh, his office or or other his boss and like other people got invited to this retreat so he's trying to like make it in the forest and one of his coworkers, who's like really into the outdoors doesn't trust him so he's following him and there's there's a, a part where he's like taking a plant or a mushroom or something about to put in his mouth and then the coworker is like no <laughs> he comes out and stops him so if somebody if somebody does mess up are there dire dire consequences or is it more like you'll get a little like you should i mean obviously you should try a little bit and you might get sick and stuff but is there other cases where you try a little bit and it's like deathly okay so <laughs> that's again hard to you know i go for the jugular <laughs> yeah okay so there there are plants that are dangerous yeah um a lot of times you know, obviously the amount of plant plays a big role in it. If right. you're familiar with castor beans and the ricin, ricin is considered to be one of the most toxic molecules on the planet. It's found inside the beans of castor beans. And it, it's one of the favorite poisons of the KGB because it takes less than a milligram hmm. to kill a person. You know, basically wow. a gram could wipe out a whole town. Pretty rare for a plant to have that level of poison. Yeah. And then same with mushrooms. If you just start popping things in your mouth, first off, most of it's going to probably taste bad. If you don't know what you're doing, you're not going to be zeroing in on the good tasting ones. And frankly, if it's tasting bad, that is an indication usually that we've evolved, that this is something we should not have. So as a protective measure, if you continue to keep you know, chewing it, and swallowing it, yeah, you might run into problems. Usually symptoms are more along the lines of stomach cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. which in a survival situation or not in the woods where you don't have the water to replace it can lead you know, to fatal dehydration. But the just mentally walking around the United States, you know, through different towns, I lived in every part and everything, 
the chances of eating something where one bite will kill you very very slim the the only yeah. thing other that the worst one i would be concerned about i mentioned pokeweed but pokeweed is just down south it's it's not that easy to find wild carrots have the mimic hemlock and so the for the most part the hemlock and the wild carrots look similar to the untrained eye there are some very distinct differences but yeah don't go out and just eat every wild carrot you find because with that one bite could be enough to to kill you and i'm sure there's probably facebook groups or i mean i wouldn't know these people but people on twitter yeah. maybe that you could like tweet pictures to and say like i okay. think this is this and yeah so there are there are a lot of facebook groups for plant and mushroom identification usually they can even be at the state level you know like texas plant identification group mm -hmm. or you know texas mushroom they're okay the problem with them is you don't know who the expert is and i actually had to stop going to those groups and paying attention to those groups because it drove me up a wall how often the identification was wrong mm. you know you you would have 100 answers and 50 would be right and 50 would be wrong and you get the people in there that are purposely kind of you know cause problems it again use it as a guideline but verify then you know if they say it's this look up online that plant you know you google or duck duck go you know the mm -hmm. wild carrot identification and it will walk you through how to identify it how to tell it apart from the poisonous one the the, the hemlock things like that so again find out the proper structural features you need to look at to confirm that the plant is a good one or a bad one is there an official organization that has like chapters or anything like kind of like the sierra club where they maybe organize hikes i, I mean i imagine there's probably like a lot of like local meetup groups that do yeah, this but there's a lot of meetup forager groups usually because foraging has become so big mm -hmm. uh a lot of people have started running these classes i've noticed if i see someone take one of my classes more than three times sometime in the next year they've hung up that they are a foraging instructor okay so be it you take all the liability off me i'm okay with that <laughs> but uh, yeah the certain more official groups would be the native plant society mm -hmm. so they have chapters you know every state and in bigger states they'll usually have multiple chapters master gardeners master naturalist mm -hmm. groups those are other pretty good resources for plant information a number of universities like here in texas at the sam houston university they have a world-renowned mushroom researcher and he does mushroom walks several times a year where you go out you spend the morning he says okay here's some you know baskets go out and bring every mushroom you can find back to me here's how you properly harvest it and then they spend the afternoon going through and identifying each of the mushrooms so to, oh, cool. to help the person learn yeah so it's 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 a it's a long class it's, it's it's a full day of you know tromping around and then learning about mushrooms but if you're interested in mushrooms it's a great way of doing it but yeah you know go online and seek out what plant identification identification groups are around you what foraging groups are around you I and mean, so for much, your classes, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I mean, pretty much every state has more than one foraging instructor available. So you might have to drive an hour or two, mm -hmm. uh, but it's worth it. And for your classes, are they only in-person classes or do you do anything online virtually? So I do both. I have the in-person classes. If you go to foragingtexas.com, upcoming classes, it lists all the plant walkabout classes. But I also do a lot of online presentations. So different organizations will have me give a, like the Dripping Springs Public Library next month, I'm doing a noon lunch and learn, teaching about the medicinal plants in that area of Texas for people. And it's open to anyone can you know log in and, and watch, or I don't even think you have to log in. You just go to the library's website and it'll be a live video sort of thing. And then you have I, a YouTube channel. Too. I have a YouTube yeah. channel with over a hundred hours 
of, oh, of wow. videos. Yeah. So I, I have a, a, my own podcast, Meriwether's World, which I do live Thursday evenings from eight to nine central time. This week will be episode 95. I'll be interviewing the Kristen Blackman. She is head of the Alpha Search and Rescue, the Search and Rescue Group here in Texas. So, but usually of the 95 episodes, probably 90 are about plant information. Yeah, maybe 85. I will be ending Meriwether's World at episode 100, but it's all up on YouTube yet. And then also there's lots of other videos I've done. Like people will record me during plant classes. I love that people video me during plant classes because then they can retain that knowledge and go look at it again mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Uh, the one thing I ask if they put it up on YouTube, just let me know so I can share the link for my YouTube channel too. So there's lots of different video classes. And though I'm located here in Texas, the thing to understand is plants don't really obey geopolitical boundaries. You know, if a plant is found in Texas, mm -hmm. it's not just found in Texas. You know, that it founds wherever the ecosystem and the sunlight and the rain is right. The big difference, like I said, between Minnesota, where I grew up in Texas, where I've been for the last 24 years, the summertime plants of Minnesota are wintertime plants of Texas. So all the weeds I grew up eating up in Minnesota are wintertime and available to me now rather than the summer. And then some of the summertime plants, the really hot summertime plants are summertime plants down here too. So it's, cool. yeah, it, it's useful wherever you are. And just to throw out my website, the Foraging Texas, 225 plants. Each plant has a Texas County map where it's found in Texas and a North American and Canadian state province map. So you can see, is it found in my state too? And on the search, features you can go by eastern US or northern Canada or you know west coast east coast south north things like that to find out which of the plants might be in your area. Yes, and we'll definitely include your website and your book all in the show notes. So for anyone listening just just head over to my blog and the podcast archives and you can get the links for them. Cool. Why do you think that foraging has become so popular recently? Is it because of the paleo diet? <laughs> so like I started, you know, teaching the classes in 2008. That's when I created the Foraging Texas website. I had been doing it before that for a number of years. I grew up as a forager. At the beginning, there were basically two types of people that would contact me to learn about wild edibles. That was the hippies and survivalists, <laughs> because both had concerns about the food. They were concerned either GMO and, you know, corporate farming and all, you know, all this sort of thing, or food would disappear. And so they were very interested. Nowadays, you can also add foodies, adventure eaters, bartenders, you know, people My bartenders just... because of like specialty cocktails. Exactly. So there are a lot of bartender competitions where you try and come up with a signature cocktail oh, cool. that, that it's only available at your bar sort of thing. And usually it's using very, very local ingredients. And so kind of an only here, only now sort of cocktail. And so just working with the different bartenders around here, I've had quite a few of them. I, I don't know if you're familiar with chartreuse. Mm -hmm. It is, okay, yeah, it's a, it's a, comes from the Trappist Monastery in France. It has 150 different herbs in it. It's started in 1700. I do classes for them where they'll bring in the, the top bartenders from an area and we will spend a day walking through the woods, collecting things, showing them things, and then making drinks out of them to you know, come up with their own. And, and so more teaching them how to experience the plants and incorporate them, the flavors and the sensations from the plants into their cocktails to then go out and win prizes in cocktail contests. So those are a lot of fun. I get paid in booze for those. So Yeah, it sounds like a fun job. Yeah, yeah. So I forgot the question. <laughs> oh, um, the, the people, yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, the bartenders. Food, yeah, I forgot too. And the health benefits, you know, they're getting out. Yeah. The food security still plays a big role. The paleo diet, like you said. And just this understanding that, you know what? There might be things wrong with modern society whether it be health food, 
processed food, whatever. Mm -hmm. There's this desire to reconnect with nature. Mm -hmm. And eating it is a pretty amazing way to reconnect with nature. Because to do that, you really have to be in tune and understand. And so there's just that thrill of, I have that power that mankind had for tens of thousands of years. And then Piggly Wiggly showed up and we no longer need it. <laughs> you know, so it's a, that sense of accomplishment and that that pride. And I will tell you, Instagrammers, they love you know, putting pictures of some, you know, about to take a bite out of a weed. So it became a bragging rights too. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, you know, look at me, I'm doing something cool sort of thing. Hey, if it's connecting you with nature, then yes, you are doing something cool. And I think it's a purpose too, because when we were, or when I was growing up, I guess I was kind of at the threshold where things started to become more structured. But like when my parents were growing up, you know, obviously it's opened the doors and said, okay, go play. (laughs) And many kids like just, you know, explored nature, but so many people nowadays, they didn't grow up with that. So I think they do want to go into nature, but they don't really know what to do. And they just don't know how to like be in nature. So you're right. It gives them like a mission, a purpose, like mm-hmm. try to find this thing. I think of it kind of like birdie. And like, if you have a life list, you're like, oh, I'm going to find this bird or I'm going to see how many birds I can find on this hike today. And yep. it's it's like a, like, it's a gamifying nature. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I almost think humans have this innate desire to hunt and hunting plants it's like i'm gonna find like you said ah that one and that one and that you know that that mm-hmm. that scorekeeping like i found 18 wild edibles or in my class is it's more like 40 or 50 wild edibles you know during the course of a four-hour class you know and it's just like you know pokemon i gotta collect them all you know sort of mm-hmm. thing it was funny when pokemon go came out and i'd be like down taking pictures of plants suddenly all these people would be surrounding me trying to figure out what Pokemon monster I was catching. It's like a dandelion. <laughs> and then we'd have impromptu foraging classes and I thought it's great. So, you know. Oh, cool. So. Yeah, that's great. Can you speak to endangered species and threatened species? And I so I know here in North Carolina, this isn't, well, actually people do poach ginkgo, but they also poach Ginseng. Venus or sorry, ginseng, yeah. They And they also poach Venus flytraps, not for, for foraging or medicinal benefits, but for the pet industry <laughs> or the plant industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can you talk about like how, how people not contribute to those practices, obviously, avoid yeah. endangered species? And down here, the big thing that is rustled is echinacea. It grows wild mm, in the ditches yeah. along here. And because of its amazing uh, health benefits, generally found in the root. Yeah, it's dug up. So again, I'm going to reference back to Foraging Texas, the website, and on there, 225 plants, and one key bit of information for each one is abundance code. Is it invasive? Is it plentiful? Is it uncommon? Un- is it common, uncommon, rare, or endangered? And that determines how much you can take of it. I say like with invasive, you need two cups of the leaves for a salad or something. Pick those two cups, and then keep going until your fingers bleed. In the middle of the night, leave bags of the leaves on neighbors' doorsteps and do the zucchini trick. We called it Minnesota. You wake up in the morning, there'd be three bags of zucchini on your on your doorstep from loving neighbors. <laughs> so yeah, take it all. Plentiful, a lot of weeds fall in that. You can take 50% of the weeds and God will have restocked the shelves next week. Not a problem there. The common, that's when you start dialing it back because common, it could be a weed that's really plentiful, but it's also very tasty, very easy to identify. So a lot of beginning foragers will be after it or even experienced Mm -hmm. foragers. So with common, you dial it back to about 20% of, of, of the colony. The uncommon, 10%. The rare, as I get a selfie with it, you know, wait until the zombies come and we're in a, you know, post-apocalyptic world, <laughs> then go ahead and eat it. And then I have some endangered plants on there and people, why do you have endangered plants on there? Well, like I said, I've been doing this since 2008 and I've taught a lot of people to go out and look at plants in the wild. And so if they are looking for the endangered plants, not to eat them, I tell them in the classes and I tell them on the website, mm-hmm. this is here. So if you find it, let me know. 
because yeah. we have, you know, I'm in contact with biologists and, and they want to know where these endangered plants are, if there's some colony of them that they weren't aware of. And, and again, in the you know, 13 years I've been doing this, we found two new colonies of some endangered plants. And so it's like, cool. So by foraging and being out looking for plants, if you know not just the good edible plants, but also the rare endangered plants, you can keep an eye out for those and see where they are. And you know, if you find some, contact your state biologist or somebody you know, and say, hey, or the, the, the Rare Plant Society or the Native Plant Society of your state. And did you know there's this orchid here in this little county? It's not on any of the maps, but I'm pretty sure it is, this plant, so. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can help conservation as well. And um, just for those you don't know what invasive means, it's basically a, a non-native species. And oftentimes when we talk about invasive species, they proliferate and to such an extent that they harm the ecosystem in some way. So that's why you mentioned to like, you know, take it out by its yeah. roots. And, and there's, I mean, depending on the species, but there's large scale extermination practices to try to get rid of both plants and and animals that that negatively impact um, the ecosystem so before we end i just have a couple more questions if you have time sure. okay so we've been talking a lot about eating but can you talk about some of the the medicinal benefits and and you also have products that do you make these from the the found from your foraging plants or can okay. you tell us about that yeah, so along with the edible side, I also teach the medicinal side. It's kind of interesting nowadays how many people scoff at the idea of plant medicine as they drink their coffee and <laughs> <laughs> or their tea, or perhaps they're yeah. smoking something and say, nah, plants don't have any powers on people. I mean, they were what allowed us to be what we are. Mm -hmm. The If you think about this, and this is one of my... I'm going to go up on my soapbox now. You know, we co-evolved with these plants. We've talked about evolution, survival of the fittest, you know, harnessing vitamin C from the plants rather than making it ourselves. Think about this. So these plants, we've been using them medicinally for longer than we have been humans. So there has been a co-evolutionary going. The ancestors that responded best to the plants then were probably the most vigorous most healthy most likely to reproduce and so we've you know basically evolved to benefit from these plants and then in 1836 chloral hydrate was invented it was the first synthetic medicine it was used as a sedative and after that the scientists said hey we can do anything because mm -hmm. when you are taking medicines from plants there is some variation especially with uh, wild plants so you kind of have to, each time you make a new batch, you have to play around with it and see just what is the proper dose. When you make a molecule from scratch, that's really easy to make in a factory, put in a pill, slap a label on it, give it to a person, say, here, take this. I tell people that herbs are for the elite. The pharmaceutical industry is for the masses. It's an economic choice. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier you know, with plants, you got to harvest them, you got to dry them, you got to extract, there's labor, there's effort. My house looks like a witch's workshop because there's plants <laughs> hanging all over the place that I turn into medicine, you know, and that I use. I, okay, I'll, I'll stop there, but it's something to think about. You know, we evolved to use the medicines in plants. So, so some you, really... can, you, you can talk freely. I, I am the same way. I mean, obviously okay. I'm a scientist and I do take some prescription drugs, but yeah. I always start with natural remedies and my my mom she she had cancer when she was younger and then she regot it as liver cancer again years later and she defied the medical books like they told her maximum two years to live and she lived nine years wow and i mean i don't know this is a sample size of one but right. she she like she went and found the the plants essentially that had anti-cancer properties like wild blueberries and turmeric mm -hmm. and stuff and she ate it like all the time and i don't know i think it maybe it played a role okay that's a perfect example here so let's talk about you know i mentioned I have a, a PhD in chemistry. I have a master's in medicinal chemistry, a PhD in physical organic chemistry. So I don't make molecules. I find the right molecule to do the job. 
The plan was to go into medicine. I got sidetracked into the oil industry for 18 years, but finally back. But the way that was one of my questions. So. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> the questions. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that because that's an interesting okay. story too. If I <laughs> does egotistically, the uh, the way a lot of pharmaceutical scientists look for new molecules is they study a culture because a, a specific culture will have a specific diet. And then they will look and see if the people in that culture either seem to be resistant to some particular type of illness or, you know, problem, <laughs> or do they all seem to come down with that same sort of thing? So a number of years ago, researchers were looking at the diet of the people in the Southwest and just saying, you know, what's going on? You know, is there anything here going on? Because they noticed that cancer is almost non-existent in the Southwest, other than some skin cancer. But for the most part, the normal, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, liver cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, you know, cervical cancer, those things, the, the, the incidences are extremely low. And it's not just a effect due to the natives of the area. People that move in, first, second, third generation people develop that same mm -hmm. resistance. And so they're looking, okay, what's going on here? Years of study tracked it down to prickly pear cactus. Hmm. The inclusion, they eat a lot of prickly pear cactus, the pads and the fruit. And it turns out there are some very strong cancer preventative compounds in the prickly pear. The study they were doing, so they collected a number of people to, you know, there are certain cancers that, okay, you, you remove it surgically, but it has a tendency to grow back. And so they took them as the, as, okay, these are the people we're going to test them on. Half get the placebo, half get the prickly pear cactus. We're going to go 18 months and see if there's any difference in the rate of cancer. Excuse me. After about 12 months, they stopped the study. They said, this is immoral to keep going. The difference in returning cancer was so huge between the people getting the placebo and the people getting the actual prickly pear cactus that the scientists themselves felt I, I, I can't, you know, do this. I, you know, everyone should have prickly pear in their cactus three times or prickly pear cactus in their diet three times a week. So wow. that's something I've done is just, you know, uh, huh. you can buy the, 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 the jars of prickly pear cactus strips. They taste kind of like green beans, throw them in a green bean casserole, throw them in your scrambled eggs, things like that. You know, eat a good healthy dose three times a week and it greatly reduces your chance of cancer. Huh. Wow. I'll have to so, look into that. Yeah. What about, do you know anything that's good for restless leg? I have restless leg syndrome. It's gotten uh, that, <laughs> pretty bad over the past few years. That one is tricky because there are nerves and so forth. One thing, I, I need my sign. So these statements have not been certified by the <laughs> FDA and are for entertainment purposes only, blah, 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 blah. Lion's mane mushroom. So the restless uh, leg, it's a kind of a nerve and brain interface thing going on that things are out of whack. And so the lion's mane mushroom has a number of different properties. One of the really cool proven ones is that it increases the number of neural connections in the brain. It actually grows connections between the, the, the brain cells. And so it, it, that has a number of different effects on everything from mood and recall, alertness, random movements. So in my family, we genetically passed down, there's a thing called benign tremors where, you know, you, you kind of shake a little. And normally I take a, a beta blocker to control that. But I found with the lion's mane, I don't need that. I, I, my shaking, again, this is, you know, one person, you know, but, yeah. but it, it seems to do to help. And again, I have to be very careful with what I say, because as a seller of things like, you know, oh, the brain pill with lion's mane and a few other things in there, you know, I can't make claims about it. I can yeah, I can read a what, disclaimer before, yeah. before we hear I mean, this podcast. I, I can give yeah. you study after study, scientific journal published peer review article about all the benefits that these plants have and the, and the formulas and so forth. But yeah, 
So, so why that. did you, you start your medicine man plant company? And, and is this like from the, the stuff that you collect as well? Or? Okay. So no, because of the scale that we yeah, are doing it. It's, yeah. So mm -hmm. there are, we, we found a toll manufacturer in California that has access to all sorts of plants and they can dry them and blend them and so forth. The formulations are mine. I've developed them based on the scientific research and experience and, and, and testing and all this sort of thing. But the, uh, the capsules are made by a company out in California to, to collect the plants, dry them, test them. I mean, the, the third party testing for heavy metals and pesticides and fungicides and mm -hmm. GMO and you know, all that sort of stuff, bacterial combination. I'm, I have some trust issues. <laughs> and so I, I make sure everything is tested and then tested again. And, you know, let's just do it one more time and test it. Mm -hmm. So it leads to a, a little higher price, but that's the, the goal is to have the purest stuff out there. And the, 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 a lot of plants don't process well. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of dietary supplements will have things like manganese, sterate, or other chemicals, BHT, preservatives, things like that in them. With mine, if you allow me to talk about it a bit, I've tracked down like for the preservative, one of the, well, the brain pill has, or no, sorry, the liver pill has flaxseed in it because the flaxseed, the oils in the flaxseed help make the other plants more bioavailable, but flaxseed spoils really quickly. So I tracked down a extract from rosemary. It is the only certified food preservative that comes from a natural source, not a lab. So things mm -hmm. like that. So I'm trying to give you the whole caveman in a capsule sort of thing for the brain, the liver, the immune system, the blood pressure, the libido, things like that. You know, <laughs> you got to go where the money is. So oh, cool I'll have to check it out. So yeah. you talked about how you went to the oil industry or you're, that was the initial attention to, yeah, so, and that's why you got your chemistry degree. Can you tell us about how you well, went from chemistry to, to foraging? Okay. So I grew up, I, I like to joke. I'm a, I'm a, a scientist raised by wolves. Both my parents <laughs> love the outdoors. They're both in their late eighties. They're still out there tromping around. But every day they would take me and my brothers out. I only had brothers, just to you know, clarify. Me and my two you know, siblings. Yeah. And they would spend about an hour at the minimum a day, either mom or dad, with us out in the woods. And they would talk about, you know, grandma used you know, this plant for that and or here, eat this or things like that. Later on, we found out it was just to wear us out. And so when we got back, we would be less of a handful. But that love of nature and that and just that knowledge it's something i grew up with at the same time i always knew i wanted to be a scientist and i pretty i wanted to be an astronaut but astronaut you can't be over six three because mm -hmm. they only make the spacesuit so big i'm six five so the day yeah. i top you know six three it's like damn it okay what else can i do well let's do chemistry because that's fun too so i went into chemistry learned chemistry like I said, was planning on becoming a pharmaceutical scientist, but I ended up in grad school meeting a lovely woman. Yesterday was our 23rd wedding anniversary, actually. Oh, wow. Congrats. We ended up in Houston because she is computers. I was chemistry and Houston had the highest concentration of computers and chemistry in the nation. If we wanted just chemistry, we'd have gone somewhere, computers somewhere, but that. And in Houston, it was oil industry. But in the oil industry, I was quickly was able to make a name for myself in creative chemistry using natural products to solve problems that had been solved by really horrible chemicals. My first patent was actually using cinnamon as a corrosion inhibitor for oil field uh, equipment hmm. and, and tubulars, where in the past they would like dip it in arsenic. So, you know, things like that. So I developed a reputation of, you know, coming up with environmentally friendly ways of taking care of the oil industry. And I did that for 18 years. 2016 hit, the price of oil plummeted. You know, we were finally producing gobs of oil and everyone in the oil industry was laid off. I was immediately picked up by a consumer chemicals company that did what are called paint sundries you know, the paint strippers and the solvents and all that sort of thing. Basically, if you bought anything poisonous or flammable from Walmart 
or Home Depot or Lowe's. It was made by this company and they just slapped the, you know, the, the name on it. But they had me redoing all their line to come up with environmentally friendly replacements for all their stuff. And I did that for three years. But then a year ago, uh, Medicine Man Plant Co. came up and said, hey, we're two guys in a dream. We want to bring ancestral medicines back to the people because we think there's a need and we think it has power and we think you're the guy to, to, to be our chemist formulator. Will you do it? And it's like, hell yeah, because that's what I've always wanted to do. Well, other than the astronaut. <laughs> you know, but if I can't be an astronaut, I want to be a medicine man. And presto, Medicine Man Plantco was created and here we are today. I love that. I love hearing about people's career transitions because I think so many people think <laughs> like you have to have this like one path. And nowadays, I think it's uncommon to have a one, one path or especially if you're if you've been working fewer years, maybe if you've been, you know, in a business for a long time. But yeah, it's it's really changed where you don't just get one job and stick with it. Yeah. And with being an astronaut, it seems like you might be able to go to space. I saw a commercial for the public going to space. So, so maybe they have made bigger spacesuits now that it's a commodity. Well, maybe, but I, 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 it sounds like I'm bragging here. I, I don't want to come across as, you know, that. You that, can that. brag. It's okay. Okay. So NASA, I work with NASA on the uh -huh. plants in space projects. Oh, cool. So uh, a number of years ago, well, there was two, two things. So when I worked for the oil industry, NASA had a program where they would talk to tech heavy industries to help solve, you know, see if they had solved the problem that NASA was having. So I was the liaison between Baker Hughes and NASA. And since I was, you know, at the NASA site, I said, so who's in charge of the, you know, space plants and go knock on the door, say, hey, let me introduce myself. <laughs> you know, I've been reading about, you know, the problems the astronauts have been having, the plants are too delicate, blah, blah, blah. Have you considered wild plants? Because they don't need a lot of care. And then also a few years ago, one of the NASA people attended one of my classes and it just meshed really well. So now I'm uh, a consultant trying to, you know, basically help them figure out what to grow for the Mars and the lunar colony and things like that. So Maybe and you get to go to space, space as a result uh, of it? Hopefully, you know, but that's the thing, you know, because <laughs> they won't to get to the front of the line. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but they don't need a farmer with wild plants, you know, you just <laughs> stick it in some dirt, throw some water at it, call it good. Yeah. You know, because uh, you know, like somebody, I'll just put myself out of a job. Dang. <laughs> you know, it's, but we'll yeah, see. you'll have but, to come up with something more complicated that they need to, to send yeah, you Yeah, but then they're not going to send it. Oh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much. This was such a fascinating conversation and I just learned so much from you and yeah, this has been so much fun. I, I try and make people think about the world and nature and our role in it and what our role has been in the past, how we've drifted from that role. So thank you for letting me share my passion with people, really. <laughs> yeah, it's been so much fun. Cool. Thank you once again, Mark. That was seriously such a fun interview. I had such a great time and I could keep talking to you about foraging and also the medicinal value of plants. So Mark's links are foragingtexas.com and you'll find links to his YouTube channel, which is Dr. Merriweather, a Facebook page, Foraging Texas, and Instagram at Merriweather Forager. That's M-E-R-R-I. W-E-T-H-E-R Forager. His book is called An Idiot's Guide to Foraging, and it includes recipes for the stuff that you collect. I'm definitely going to check it out. You can find it on Amazon. And his company is Medicine Man Plant Company at medicinemanplantco.com. Again, I'll include all of the links in the show notes so you can easily find him. Thanks, guys, so much for watching and listening. I just hope you have an amazing day. And get outside. Start taking pictures of some plants and seeing if you can eat them. Bye. If you liked this episode, care about wildlife, care about conservation, 
or know somebody who is interested in going into wildlife biology careers, please share this episode. You can also rate and review my podcast that really helps people find it. My goal is to spread messages of conservation and kindness for wildlife and to help people navigate wildlife biology careers. Rating and reviewing my podcast really helps other people find it. If you have questions or show ideas, you can find me at fancyscientist.com. My social media handles are at fancyscientist. On Instagram, there's an underscore between fancy and scientist. You can also send an email to hello at fancyscientist.com. If you're an aspiring wildlife biologist, ecologist, or zoologist, you can join me every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Facebook Live, where I answer different career questions. You can also ask me questions on the spot. I'm here for you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I am so grateful for you. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to animals and be kind to each other.